This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello and welcome to Witnesses of History for the beginning of June. We're going to concentrate on Dunkirk this time, but we cannot uh, ignore the fact that this is the glorious 70th Platinum Jubilee celebration weekend. Queen Elizabeth II became queen in February 1952, but she was crowned in early June 1953. This is the report from June the 3rd, 1953, in the Daily Telegraph of Her Majesty's Coronation. In the Abbey Church of St Peter Westminster, endowed richly by the first illustrious Elizabeth, Her Most Excellent Majesty Queen Elizabeth II dedicated herself yesterday to the service of her people. To the multitude in the Abbey, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr Fisher, presented her as their undoubted Queen. To the east, south-west and north sides of the ceremonial theatre, the Queen turned slowly with a slight bow as the Archbishop demanded four times, Wherefore all you who are come this day to do your homage and service, are you willing to do the same? Never, at any point, did she waver more than a few inches in her step, despite the cumbersome, traditional robes she was called upon to wear. Never, at any point, in the complicated ritual, had either she or the Archbishop faltered over a single word. "'Stand firm,' said the Archbishop to her, "'and hold fast, henceforth, the seat and state of royal and imperial dignity, which is this day delivered unto you. With this exultation he led the homage, kneeling with his hands between the queens. As he did fealty, the bishops murmured in unison with him over their their vow to be faithful and true. Then he kissed her hand. Next came the Duke of Edinburgh, whose hand she took in hers before he drew back to touch the crown and to kiss her on the left cheek. And so we move back to the 1st of June 1940. Evacuation of the British Expeditionary Force from Dunkirk began on the 26th of May. By the 4th of June, when the operation ended, 198,000 British and 140,000 French and Belgian troops had been saved. This is John Charles Austin's account. Eventually, we arrived at the spot on this side of the last canal separating us from the sea, where we had to abandon the vehicles. They were smashed up in the darkness and pushed into the canal. The men formed up by the roadside and the roll was called for the last time. A weird scene. The troop sergeant majors calling out the names of the gunners in loud whispers and ticking them off on their lists by torchlight as the answers came back out of the darkness. From nowhere, it seemed. All present and correct, sir. And once more the fifty of us started off, this time on foot formed up in threes, the Major and I walking at the head of the column. To our great joy, we discovered that the bridge spanning the canal had not been smashed. Once over it, and another obstacle between us and the unknown had been passed. We continued towards Malo-Leban, crossing the railway and marching through the ruined street of Rosendal, whose skeleton walls stood around us like ruins of some bygone civilization. 
The only sound was the crunching of the broken glass under our feet, as if we were marching over hard ice crystals on a winter's day. Mysterious shadows flitted about the streets, in and out of broken doorways, and disappearing silently around corners. They were stray inhabitants who had been cut off by the swift march of events and were living in cellars, and a few looters, and probably a few spies. The German gunfire was now incessant, the flash of the explosions continually lighting up the scene for a second or two on every side of us. Now we were no longer alone. We began to meet little batches of our infantry marching in the same direction. Often, as we approached, we would be hailed out of the darkness. Is that a company? King's own Scottish borderers? or the name of some other unit, would be shouted. These were bits of the rearguard coming back and marching still in good formation down to the beaches. The road became very narrow, and adding to the difficulties of getting along, the troops were harassed by an incessant hooting from behind, which after a time got on everybody's nerves more than the shell fire. Finally, we halted to discover what the fuss was about. A crowd of panic-stricken French poilus were trying to drive their lorries in the darkness right through our marching infantry, knocking them to right and left off the road into the ditches. Angry words passed. There seemed great likelihood that a fight would take place. Fortunately, at the last moment, the French drivers thought better of it and fell in behind the troops. It was high time, too. We were just in the mood to shoot, if necessary. They followed behind us at a marching pace for some time till they turned off down another road. We were now in the region of the dunes, which rose like humps of a deeper darkness, and these in their turn were dotted with the still blacker shapes of abandoned vehicles, half sunk in the sand, fantastic twisted shapes of burned out skeletons, and crazy looking wreckage that had been heaped up in extraordinary piles by the explosion of bombs. All these black shapes were silhouetted against the angry red glare in the sky, which reflected down on us the agony of burning Dunkirk. Slowly we picked our way between the wreckage, sinking ankle-deep in the loose sand, until we reached the gaunt skeletons of what had once been the houses on the promenade. The whole front was one long continuous line of blazing buildings, a high wall of fire roaring and darting in tongues of flame, with the smoke pouring upwards and disappearing in the blackness of the sky above the rooftops. Out seawards the darkness was as thick and smooth as black velvet, except for now again when the shape of a sunken destroyer or paddle steamer made a slight thick thickening on its impenetrable surface. Facing us the great black wall of the mole stretched from the beach far out into sea, the end of it almost invisible to us. The mole had an astounding, terrifying background of giant flames leaping a hundred feet into the air from blazing oil tanks. At the shore end of the mall stood an obelisk, and the high explosive shells burst around it with monotonous regularity. Along the promenade, in parties of fifty, the remnants of practically all the last regiments were wearily trudging along. There was no singing and very little talk. Everyone was far too exhausted to waste breath. Occasionally, out of the darkness, came a sudden shout. A Company, Green Howards, C Company, East Yorks. These shouts came either from stragglers trying to find lost units or guides on the lookout for the parties they were to lead on to the mole for evacuation. The tide was out. 
over the wide stretch of sand could be dimly discerned little oblong masses of soldiers moving in platoons and orderly groups down towards the edge of the sea. Now and again you would hear a shout. Alf, where are you? Let's hear from you, Bill. Over this way, George. It was none too easy to keep contact with one's friends in the darkness, and amid so many little masses of moving men, all looking very much alike, if you stopped for a few seconds to look behind, the chances were you attached yourself to some entirely different unit. From the margin of the sea, at fairly wide intervals, three long thin black lines protruded into the water, conveying the effect of low wooden breakwaters. These were lines of men, standing in pairs behind one another far out into the water, waiting in queues till boats arrived to transport them, a score or so at a time, to the steamers and warships that were filling up with the last survivors. The queues stood there, fixed and almost as regular as if ruled. No bunching, no pushing, nothing like the mix-up to be seen in the turnstiles when a crowd is going into a football match. Much more orderly, even, than a waiting theatre queue. About this time, afraid that some of our own men might be trailing off, I began shouting, 2004th Field Regiment! 2004th Field Regiment! We were also having difficulty in finding our report centre. I wonder where this blasted report centre is, said the Major. Give another shout. If they hear us, they can shout back instructions and tell us what to do. So from this point, I went along shouting. But the report centre failed to materialise and soon we decided that hanging about any longer on the promenade look, looking for it might prove disastrous. Heavy shells commenced crashing into the tops of the ruined buildings along the promenade, bringing down heaps of brick and masonry almost on our heads. It'll be healthier on the beach, said the Major. A group of dead and dying soldiers on the path in front of us quickened our desire to quit the promenade. Stepping over bodies, we marched down the slope to the dark beach. Dunkirk front was now a lurid study in red and black, flames, smoke and the night itself all mingling together to compose a frightful panorama of death and destruction. Red and black, all the time, except for an occasional flash of white low in the sky miles away to the left and right, where big shells from coastal defence guns at Calais and Nopor were being hurled into the town. Down on the beach, you immediately felt yourself surrounded by a deadly, evil atmosphere. A horrible stench of blood and mutilated flesh pervaded the place. There was no escape from it. Not a breath of air was blowing to dissipate the appalling odour that arose from the dead bodies that had been lying on the sand, in some cases for several days. We might have been walking through a slaughterhouse on a hot day. The darkness, which hid some of the sights of horror from our eyes, seemed to thicken this dreadful stench. It created the impression that death was hovering around, very near at hand. We set our faces in the direction of the sea, quickening our pace to pass through the belt of this nauseating miasma as soon as possible. Water! Water! groaned a voice from the ground just in front of us. It was a wounded infantryman. He'd been hit so badly... There was no hope for him. Our water bottles had long been empty, but by carefully draining them all into one, we managed to collect a mouthful or two. A sergeant knelt down beside the dying man and held the bottle to his lips. Then we proceeded on our way, leaving the bottle with the last few drains in it near the poor fellow's hand so that he could moisten his lips from time to time. We will return to those beaches later, but first we go back 300 years, though we stay 
in Dunkirk for John Greenhigh's report on religious observances there. Some of our English who had lived three or four years in Dunkirk told me that the monks there do live mostly or merely upon alms, and I saw some mendicant friars go to the streets two together, with each a basket in his arms, and into shops and houses, and I noted how they, though as beggars, passed along all people of all sorts take off their huts, and showing great reverence towards them, as they do strictly observe towards all their religious. They told me that these friars do each day once cover their tables with a coarse but a clean cloth and set on salt only. They're expecting what their providers will bring them, which office they do by turns, of which it be me more or less they make a dinner. And be it never so short that they who beg the next day do not complain, their manner being not to ask but to stand silent and to take what is given. When it falls out, which sometimes though seldom does, that they have had many short meals together and are too sore pinched, they have a bell on top of a corner of their house called the starving bell, which they, having first covered their empty table, setting on salt only and setting their whole door wide open, and have out of modesty retired themselves into their cells out of sight, they ring out loud, which being once heard abroad has the same effect there that a fire-bell being rung had in the town with us, people running out into the streets and crying, Jesus, Maria, the starving-bell, woe and alas for the holy men. Such a hubbub, as though the judgment of Sodom were ready to fall upon the town for their neglect of the holy men. So of the richer sort, the mistresses do all in haste send out each their maid, running one with a cheese, another with a loaf, another with a dish of butter, one carries half a great pasty, another runs with a standing piece of roast beef, etc. All which, entering the monastery hall, they lay down upon the table and get them out again. One monk, peeping through a hole, sees when the table is soundly furnished, then comes out and shuts the hall door of modesty, so as they who come after that go back again with their meat, saving both it and their credit. When all are gone, the hungry friars, creeping out of their holes, do fall aboard. In the top of the arched roof of the cathedral, which is very high, there is a capolo, or great round hole, as round and broad as a millstone. In that hole was first made a flash of fire lightning, as if the heaven opened there. There descended from thence a living milk-white dove. It was let down by a pulley, with a small string with its wings and tail extended, and spread by two very small white sticks at the back of them, to which the feathers were tied with white thread, and could scarce be perceived. But I, standing very near, did discern it. And this done, the dove looked prettily about as a dove will descending by degrees when it came down near over the priest's head it stayed hanging and hovering over them a good while they still singing veni sancte spiritus etc then it was drawn up by degrees into the cupolo out of sight and after this out of the same great hole in the roof were thrown down as it were many cloven tongues of fire which came down flaming over the priest's heads but they, instead of receiving them, opened to the right and left and let those fall to the floor, so saving their shaven crowns. I perceived these were papers besmeared with some sulphurous manner to make them blaze better, and at the coming down of these tongues there was a shout set up in the church that the town rang again. Lastly, there was thrown down a shower of holy water which fell in drops upon the people to sprinkle and to hallow them. 
So ended the procession of all the foolish fopperies of the forenoon. Headlined the miracle of Dunkirk, 335,000 troops taken off. This is the Daily Telegraph's report from the 5th of June, 1940. Never has a Prime Minister more magnificently matched himself to a great occasion than did Mr Churchill yesterday afternoon. In a speech which lasted only 34 minutes, he unfolded to the House of Commons the story of a miracle of deliverance for which he had not dared himself to hope when he warned them last week to be prepared to face hard and heavy tidings. Mr Churchill confessed that he had expected the hard lot of having to announce to the House the greatest military disaster in our long history. I thought that perhaps from 20,000 to 30,000 might be re-embarked. The rest of the Allied armies would be broken up in the field or be forced to surrender for lack of food and ammunition. The whole root and core and brain of the British Army, on which we were to build and are to build the British armies of the later years of the war, seemed about to perish or to be led into an ignominious captivity. It seemed impossible that any large number of Allied troops could reach the coast. Mr Churchill paused. Now, suddenly, the scene is clear, he said. A miracle of deliverance has been achieved by valour, perseverance, perfect discipline and faultless service. The pent-up cheers burst out at the Prime Minister's announcement which followed that over 335,000 men, French and British, were carried out of the jaw of death to their native land and to the tasks which lie immediately before them. The note of warning followed at once. This was not a victory. Wars were not won by evacuation. Yet there was a victory within the deliverance. It belonged to the Royal Air Force. We shall never surrender, he concluded, and even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, will carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, sets forth to the rescue and liberation of the old. The cheers surged up, like a wave as he sat down. General Alan Brooke wrote in late May, nothing but a miracle can save the British Expeditionary Force, the BEF, now, and the end cannot be far off. We carried out our withdrawal successfully last night back to the old frontier defences, but where the danger lies is on our right rear. The German armoured divisions have penetrated to the coast Abbeville, Boulogne and Calais have been rendered useless. We're therefore cut off from our sea communications, beginning to be short of ammunition. Supplies still all right for three days, but after that, scarcity. Later on, he reflects. As I look back on those last days before Dunkirk, I still marvel at the fortune we had and I shall always remain convinced that, had it not been for the guiding hand of an almighty providence, the BEF would never have left the shores of France. Repeatedly throughout the war, I realised the influence of this guiding hand, this same superhuman power, watching and guiding the destiny of humanity. Had the BEF not returned to this country, it is hard to see how the army could have recovered from this blow. The First World War had unfortunately taken the cream of our manhood. 
Those that had fallen were the born leaders of men in command of companies and battalions. It was always the best that fell by taking the lead. Those that we lost as subalterns, captains and majors in the First World War were the very ones that we were short of as colonels, brigadiers and generals in the Second. Had we therefore been deprived of the existing leaders of the army before Dunkirk, it may be imagined how irreparable the loss would have been. There were also the warrant officers and non-commissioned officers, men who were quite irreplaceable when it came to training and to shaping new units. Reports recorded at the time include things like, one of them told me, for instance, how he lay down with 400 men on the beach who were machine-gunned systematically up and down by Stukas and bombed by about 60 enemy aircraft. And in the end, there was not a single casualty. A chaplain, similarly machine-gunned and bombed, got up to see his figure outlined in the sand by bullet holes. These reports are by C.B. Mortlock, who, in the Daily Telegraph on the 8th of June, recorded... Officers of the highest rank do not hesitate to put down the deliverance of the BEF to the fact of the nation being at prayer on Sunday, May the 26th. The consciousness of miraculous deliverance pervades the camps in which the troops are now housed in England. And so with those thoughts after our look back at the events of Dunkirk and as we celebrate the jubilee of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II once more we can turn with our national anthem to pray for God's salvation.